I'm Lila Garrett. Next on Connect the Dots, journalist David Swanson brings us up to date on Fast Track, the TPP, the failed peace vote in Congress, the rebellion of American drone pilots, and more. And Grace Aaron, former executive director of the Pacifica National Board, fills us in on the KPFK election dates. Coming up right now on Connect the Dots. Let's move the world to a better place. A world without war, a world without race, a world where our leaders follow our will, not where we let them convince us to kill. Let's move the world to a better place, a world with a future we're happy to face, a world without gods that never existed. World where the truth will not be resisted. Welcome to Connect the Dots. I'm your host, Lila Garrett, wondering why we continue to think of Congress as a governing body representing the people instead of as a bunch of thugs representing themselves. Why else would they, by a vote of 288 to 139, Vote against a bill last week introduced by Congress people Barbara Lee and Jim McGovern to end this genocide in Iraq. Yes, I said genocide. What else do you call 17,000 airstrikes that have already destroyed that country? It's a miracle that anyone or anything is left there to kill. No wonder the Iraqi so-called army is unwilling to fight. Fight for what? More random American drones and bombings? And after the president firmly pledged no more troops on the ground, on top of the 3,500 who are already there, he reversed himself and has ordered 500 more. They call them advisors. They still think they're getting away with calling boots on the ground advisors. Just as a matter of simple historic interest, Eisenhower started that when he first sent the first 50 troops, quote, advisors, end quote, into Vietnam in 1955. It was not Kennedy who started that war, as the theory goes. It was Eisenhower. Those 50 advisors began the longest war in American history. By the time it was over, 30 years later, there were 690,000 American troops on the ground. 58,000 Americans had been killed or wounded, and there were an estimated 2 million Vietnamese casualties. And for what? Primarily for the wealth of the American arms industry. That took off like a rocket. American-made, of course. And it still hasn't stopped. So bottom line, why are we still opening military bases and sending troops to every vulnerable country we can find? You've guessed it because our permanent war economy is entrenched. And to feed that economy, we must be at permanent war. Not sometimes, at all times. Hence the word permanent. Today, we're going to begin by looking at where we are, how we got there, and how do we get out of it. It's not easy. While we're stuck in the middle of a civil war in Syria... While we're still dropping drones on that country, and of course on Somalia and Yemen and who knows where else, and while we are domestically struggling to remain even theoretically a country of, by, and for the people, 
The erosion of our democracy by constant war and corporate rule has placed us in a position where we can no longer rationalize. Our democracy is on the line, and every day that line develops more holes. Now we're faced with two bills that, if passed, will finally give corporations and the war machine what they want, absolute power over our country and ultimately the world. I'm referring, of course, to the fast-track resolution, which John Brenner attached to a completely irrelevant bill to sneak it through the Congress, and Thug Brenner has succeeded. In their infinite stupidity, indifference, or willingness to take a bribe, after having rejected the fast-track bill days before, to the relief and joy of over half the country, they passed it. Why? Here's an analysis by Move On. Quote, Speaker Boehner's do-over vote was proof of what this whole deal is really about. This isn't about supporting workers. It's about advancing a corporate agenda. Republicans have revealed their commitment to undercutting protection for workers, consumers, and the environment. And the decision by a handful of Democrats who went along with them to side with corporate interests over the rest of us will be remembered by their constituents next election. Now the action returns to the Senate, where we look forward to working with progressive champions, including Senators Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Bernie Sanders, and others, to stop fast track once and for all. This bill is only returning to the Senate because the movement to stop fast track has grown louder and stronger and will continue to build in the days to come. Okay, so says move on. Well, my answer is from your mouth to God's ear, move on. Maybe there is such an ear and a God on our side who has it. Let's hope so. Meanwhile, we must ask ourselves, after that sellout vote, is there still a chance of stopping the TPP? With us now is David Swanson. Most of you know him. He's been a regular on Connect the Dots for a long time. We can count on him to tell it like it is, and what, if anything, we can do to fix it. David Swanson is an author, an activist, a journalist, and a radio host. He's the director of World Beyond War, all one word, dot org, and a campaign coordinator for Roots Action, all one word, dot org. And Swanson's books include War is a Lie. He blogs at davidswanson.org and warisacrime.org. He hosts Talk Nation Radio, and he is a 2015 Nobel Prize nominee. So, David Swanson, welcome to Connect the Dots. Hi, Lila. Great to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. You have so much solid information. Well, let's begin by talking about what happened with Fast Track, because last week we were all celebrating the fact that, wow, it looks like we're going to win Fast Track, that the Congress isn't being conned, that it was 300-something to 100-something voting against Fast Track. And now suddenly John Boehner pulled a fast one, and it's been reversed. Tell us what happened. Well, it's not quite yet a done deal, but it's back to the Senate from the House in a form that might conceivably make it through the Senate, in which case the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
will be coming on a fast track through both houses and very likely to pass. We'll have to fight it with everything we have, but it will be with no amendments and little, if any, debate and a quick up or down vote of 50 percent in both houses rather than two-thirds in the Senate with amendments and debates and so forth. So we didn't want this. And it's happened in large part because of the pathetic triviality of our Congress members who can't seem to see the bigger picture. And you had Republicans who wouldn't vote for the assistance for people who might be thrown out of work by this disaster, and Democrats who wouldn't vote for that piece of the puzzle either because it was going to be funded by stealing money from Medicare. And so that failed. And because that little piece failed, it looked like a victory. But the House went back and passed fast track without that part of the package and sent it to the Senate. And it did so with a lot of Republicans. The Republican leadership had thrown three Republicans out of their leadership positions as punishment for having voted the wrong way. So there's that level of enforcement. And 28 Democrats, many of whom were very likely badgered and bribed in various means, four of them were bribed, as was reported by ABC, by the president giving them a ride on an aeroplane. (laughs) He took these four horses' rear ends of the TPP apocalypse on a trip on his Air Force One to the G7 summit. This was Edie Bernice Johnson, Gerald Connolly, Quigley, and Himes. And it is so pathetic what these people will be swayed by. A ride on an airplane with the president, and they'll vote for NAFTA on steroids. So exposing how these people have sold out and for what needs to be part of the thanking and spanking the members of the House for what they did or didn't do as we go to the Senate with the demand that they vote no on any piece of this package that allows the TPP to go forward. That's a very good explanation. Thank you for it. But aren't we being, if we expect the Senate to change anything, a little naive, didn't this first go through the Senate and they passed fast track 60 to 40 or something like that? Well, look, even if they had passed exactly what they want to pass again, we would have a moral obligation to resist it and the possibility of success. But in fact, what they passed was fast track combined, tied to, stitched together like Siamese twins with minimal, pathetic amount of aid for some of the workers who will inevitably lose their jobs because of what they're doing. And when it went to the House, they were such greedy, uh, <laughs> I can't say it on the air who they are, they wouldn't pass it with aid for workers. They would only pass it without. And so it goes back to the Senate in that form. And so the question is whether the Senate will pass this disastrous piece of legislation without some sort of little mitigating band-aid on it, or will they do it by tying it together with aid for homeless kittens or something else that puts a smiley face on it, and then it'll go back to the House to see if they'll pass that. So there is the possibility, and we need to keep resisting and keep raising awareness and keep demanding that further sections of the thing be made public. It's absolutely outrageous that they're doing this with the bill secret and unread by most of the representatives and senators, for that matter. It has to be unread because they said if you want to read it, you can't enter the room with anybody else. or You can't take any pictures of it. You can't take any notes, and you can't tell anyone about it. So reading it is a very lonely experience, and you can't do anything about it anyway once you've read it. Now, there are some courageous, outraged elected officials who paid no attention to that. 
Alan Grayson was one that I know of, and I know of one or two others, but, you know, that was it. Now it's going to go back to the Senate. And the notes I have from Move On are that you can expect the senators, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Bernie Sanders, and it says, and others, to stop fast track once and for all. That's three senators. I can't think of the others. Can you? (laughs) No. I mean, it is true that even a single senator can stop something if they have the nerve and are willing to do it. But I think there's no guarantee, and we are going to have to push very hard for this. But one thing that any one senator could do in this case that's rather unique to this case is make the whole text of the bill public, enter it into the congressional record. They have every legal right to do so. And even a Republican House member has made a chapter public after it was already made public by WikiLeaks, which has made some of the chapters public and is offering a hundred grand to anyone who will make the whole thing public, which I don't know whether that helps or hurts. You know, they don't want to be seen as looking for money from the traitorous WikiLeaks that engages in so many acts of journalism. But there is absolutely the legal responsibility and right of any House or Senate member to go ahead and make the whole thing public. And any of the 600 corporate lobbyists who've been in on drafting the thing, and some of whom have publicly said what a disaster it is, they could become heroes and make it public. And if they have to go live in Russia for a while, we'll get them home when we can. (laughs) Well, they may not agree to that, but nevertheless, that's a way to go. Do you expect the grassroots to be as resolved as they were when it was in the Congress? I mean, there was a tremendous grassroots effort to get the Congress to vote against Fast Track, and it worked. I mean, we won by like a 100 votes. It really and truly worked. And now that they've split it up and they've made it so confusing, they have reversed the vote. That really should be criminal, because that's the kind of thing that thugs do. Talk to us about the art of confusion in the Congress. When I tweeted out the latest vote on uh, Wednesday, the response I kept getting back from people was, hey, I looked at the title of that bill and it has nothing to do with Fast Track. And I said, yes, and they appreciate your confusion. They do this intentionally. They chop everything up into different strange combinations and self-enforcing rules and amendments to unrelated must-pass legislation in order to provide excuses for having voted the wrong way and in order to confuse people. And they rush things through on no notice in order to make them happen without public debate and without public input. They talk about how they're going to make the TPP public, but they're ramming through fast track with no public debate of what it is or why it's needed in order to make sure that the TPP goes through. And this is, you know, a policy that has been used for the worst corporate trade agreements that have failed without it and have passed with it. And they're putting this through in the most anti-democratic manner and are delighted when people are too confused. But if they get fast track through and then the TPP is on the table and it's not tied to aid for infants, orphans or anything of the sort, it's just the TPP, well, that ought to be clear enough, even when they've got fast track for us to mobilize people to resist it in huge numbers, uh, and we'll see what we're able to do. Well, I think on this first vote in the Senate, though, we should resist each one. 
I think on this first vote, we should write to our senators. You know, I'm going to write to Barbara Boxer and to Diane Feinstein. I don't know how Feinstein is going to vote because she's basically very conservative. But Barbara Boxer should certainly vote against it. And I just feel as though who's ever hearing this program at this moment should call their senator and tell them to vote no when fast track or any part of it comes back. That's absolutely right. Now, let's talk about our reaction to the TPP. If the TPP passes, we've been saying it's a real game changer, that corporations can really trump government and stop government and sue governments when the government regulations, for example, keep them from getting a certain kind of profit if they ignore, let's say, the environmental rules. And they can sue them for the difference in what they've lost. Is this true? Absolutely. And I mean, this is not brand new with TPP. This is something that's been going on for years now with other corporate trade agreements on a smaller scale. Foreign corporations suing a national government, not before that national government's courts or any international courts, but before a corporate tribunal set up by corporate lawyers under these trade agreements and overturning national laws and receiving compensation for lost profits and guesstimated future lost profits and so forth. And this is something that would explode under the TPP, the number of areas and issues under which this could be done. So it would not be just the fossil fuel companies, but all kinds of corporations suing and overturning environmental restrictions and labor policy, and not to mention the restrictions that are explicitly put in place in any number of areas by the TPP on banking regulations and Internet freedom and costs of generic medicines and so forth. I mean, it is a disaster in every area of interest that anyone could possibly care about. And somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who says she wants to go back to regulating Wall Street and separating the speculators from the banks and so forth, it's explicitly forbidden by the TPP. The bills that have been stopped as Internet censorship through great public struggles and influence on the Congress with getting part of the corporate world on board would be rammed through under the TPP. So it's got very little to do with trade, and it's got a lot to do with putting through a massive corporate agenda, in many cases, of items that couldn't go through legislatively on their own. We could linger on this for a long time and really allow ourselves to be gothically aggravated, which wouldn't be such a bad idea. But the important thing is that we not lose sight of fast track, which will lead to an up or down vote on the TPP and we not allow ourselves to be conned. Now, let's talk about another bill that appeared before the Congress last Thursday, and part of it appeared on Wednesday, and that was the bill to stop the war in Iraq. That was introduced by Barbara Boxer and Jim McGovern and other progressives, and that bill failed by 288 to 139. Can you tell us why they would vote such a bill down? Is it because they don't want to be the ones to stop the war, but they also don't want to vote for the war? I mean, didn't this bill demand that there be a congressional vote up or down whether or not Congress is going to stand behind this war? Wasn't that what it was about? Yeah, under the War Powers Resolution, any time a president goes off and illegally launches a war without any congressional authorization, as President Obama has done in Iraq and Syria now, 
any one Congress member, and in this case it was three, Jim McGovern, Barbara Lee, and Walter Jones, the one Republican of the three, can bring a resolution that forces a debate and a vote on ending the war. And so Congressman Kucinich used to do this, and he would make that debate. It's a two-hour debate. He would make it about ending the war, and you would have the argument on one side for ending the war and the argument on the other side for continuing it. Well, Congressman Jim McGovern framed the whole debate as a debate on whether to have a debate. (laughs) That is, he said, this is a resolution that would force the Congress to bring up a new authorization for the use of military force and debate it and pass it if it wants to continue the war. And so the debate happened, which was, of course, the only debate that was going to happen because the thing wasn't going to pass. On one side was passionate, fear-mongering support for bigger, badder wars, And on the other side, it's sort of procedural talk about Congress's war powers, responsibilities under the Constitution, and so forth. There were only four Congress members who said even a word against war. One of them was Barbara Lee. One of them, the first, was Charles Rangel, and then very very mixed reviews there as he pushed all sorts of myths together with truth. But the one who was worth the entire debate was John Lewis the hero from the Selma movie, who took his three minutes to denounce the entire institution of war, to explain how war is making things worse, to explain the repercussions for decades to come of generating hatred among the young people in the countries being bombed, to demand that every troop and mercenary be brought home for the good of all concerned. And so just for that speech from John Lewis, I think it was worth it. But you had 139 members out of the entire Congress vote for this resolution, which was get every troop out in 30 days unless the president claims it's not safe, then he has till the end of the year. And some of them were voting yes because they actually wanted to have a new AUMF and a new war. Many of them were voting yes because they wanted the withdrawal or wanted to look like they wanted the withdrawal in a vote that had very little chance of passing. So overall, you have the bulk of the Congress preferring to not vote yes or no on wars. Because when Hillary Clinton voted yes on Iraq, that cost her the presidential nomination in 2008. And let us hope once again. And in 2013, almost two years ago, Congress made clear they would vote no on missiles into Syria. And since then, they've been able to avoid saying yes or no on any wars, and they prefer it that way. And their loyalty is not to the Congress. It's to the Democrats or the Republicans. And both parties want to just avoid displeasing anybody and let the wars roll on. This is just the Congress, you know, laying this at the feet of the president. They want to complain when something goes wrong that the president, any president, has approved of, but not at their own feet. So it's more infighting, it's more provincial nonsense, and it's more betraying the people. It is disgusting. They want to be able to let the wars roll on and their weapons funders be pleased, but be a war critic. Be someone who denounces the war as ill-conceived, even while funding it and letting it roll on. And that's why the vote was worth forcing, because it forced them to take one position or another. Um, but you had only 139 taking the right position. And some for the wrong reasons. So that's really a very small percentage. It's not as large as it seems. Well, David Swanson, we have a permanent war economy, and as I pointed out in my opening and have pointed out many times, when you have a permanent war economy, the only way to feed it is with permanent war. And until that concept is absorbed by the Congress and the people, we are going to continue in this pattern. 
Now, you and I saw something that I thought was very, very heartening, and as I remember, so did you. It was on the Sunday morning show of George Stephanopoulos. I've forgotten what they've called their show, with a wonderful woman reporter whose name I have also disgracefully forgotten. But it showed a housing project eight miles away from Baghdad, which was so stunning and which would support 600 residents. And eventually, if it was completed, thousands of residents, you know, right near Ramadi and right near Baghdad. What did you think about this project? Yeah, another good report by ABC. I can't recall when I've mentioned two good things from ABC News in the same uh, conversation before in my life. But, I mean, a planned community, a whole town. I saw 17,000 apartments by the end of the year and many more to come being built with a Korean developer and so forth right outside of Baghdad. And that sort of construction that gives people hope for the future and something to work on and jobs and income, that could be a drop in the bucket to what could be going on positively in Iraq or in Syria for, you know, a fraction of what is being spent on making everything worse by people who know it's making everything worse, by people like Martin Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who told Congress last week that there's no military solution. We know there's no military solution. So we're going to use the U.S. military and train and arm the Iraqi military. That's what no military solution means. For a fraction of what's being spent on that endless madness, the United States could be building apartments and schools and hospitals and making itself loved rather than hated in Iraq. And the idea that you can't do that is belied by the fact that somebody else is doing it and a U.S. media outlet is going there and reporting on it. The name of it is the Bishmayer, B-I-S-H-M-A-Y-A, if I can read my own terrible handwriting correctly. And it's the Bishmayer Project, and the man who's the head of it is named Sami Al-A-R-A-G-I, Araji. He spoke, and the reporter asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, why not? Why not? We're hoping that this will help. And it was such a moving moment. And I know that we both thought when we saw it, my God, exactly what you said, David Swanson. Why isn't the United States getting it? Why aren't they doing it? The Iraqis are not bombing it. ISIS is not bombing it. Hopefully, we're not going to inspire them to bomb it by this show. And even the United States is not bombing it. Although anyone who wants the war to continue may actually do that. They are showing respect for it. And even the U.S. military is resistant to continuing and escalating this war. It's the Obama White House. It's the State Department. It's Samantha Power. It's the Democratic and Republican Party's campaign funders that are pushing this war, war, and more war agenda. And not only would violence and hatred and the financial expenses go down if they shifted to building things rather than destroying things, but the suicide rate of U.S. veterans who imagined they were doing something good in Iraq would go down if they saw something positive happen there. So somehow or other, we have to articulate that to the peace movement. Because if we, on the one hand, fight the TPP and fast track, you know, we don't want to appear to be and we don't want to actually be negative on every level. And one of the problems is that when you ask somebody, because I've asked Dennis Kucinich, what would he do about the fact that ISIS is now unleashed in that area, in Syria and in Iraq? 
and throughout the region. What would he now do that were in that box? He did not give me a specific answer, and I did not give him one until I saw this builder and this project, because that's exactly what we should be doing. What about the Syrian refugees? The paper talks about these Syrian refugees who are leaving Syria correctly in such droves that they qualify as the greatest exodus of refugees in the history of the world. Now, isn't there some way to make that a positive experience that these refugees are leaving? What if countries welcomed these refugees in? What if the United States spent, instead of spending this money on war, money on helping those countries welcome them in? What if we welcomed them in as well and had them go to places that are undeveloped in the United States and help them there? What do you think? Well, of course, refugees and immigrants of all sorts should be welcomed everywhere. And if the United States were waging more of its wars closer to home and people were making the connection between the immigrants they hate and the wars they love, it would help end the wars. When you overthrow the government in Honduras and create chaos and then hate the immigrant children who arrive at your doorstep, but you don't make the connection between the two, there's a problem. But I'll certainly tell you what I would do in Iraq and Syria. I would impose an arms embargo. You know, three-quarters of the arms are coming from the United States. You keep lamenting this violent region with these inherently violent, backward Muslim people, but they're violent people being armed by U.S. and Western weapons makers. And you could create a hugely effective arms embargo just by the United States alone, beginning it and then shift to diplomacy and actual aid of the sort we've been talking about rather than so-called military aid, that is, furthering the destruction and the violence and the chaos, which is obviously making matters worse. And it would cost you less in every sense of cost to make that shift. Not only is that, but it would mean work throughout the world. It can have nothing but a positive effect. People may think of it as a sentimental idea, but really... Basically, a very practical business idea. As you can see, when you see this project, what should our listeners log on to in order to see this piece that we were just discussing? I'm not at my desk, but I imagine if you did a web search for ABC, Iraq, housing construction, you would find it, because that's what I did and found it the other day. I'll try to put a link to it at World Beyond War as well, which is at worldbeyondwar.org. And if you want to see a plan for what could be done positively in Iraq and Syria, you can also go to worldbeyondwar.org. That's a great idea. Worldbeyondwar.org and a plan for Iraq there. That is a great practical idea. Okay, now another thing we want to talk about as a step toward peace really came as a surprise to me. David Swanson, you sent an article about the rebellion of the drones pilots. Is that a, a real possibility? Is that real? Well, you know, there are a number of drone pilots who've become sort of public whistleblowers about what they used to be engaged in. Most prominently, a young man named Brandon Bryant, who is now a witness in a case being brought in Germany against the German government for participating in the U.S. drone program, in which his testimony will be about the murders he was engaged in and unable to continue engaging in. This is a case being brought by family members of victims killed by U.S. Drones. 
And there has long been uh, understanding that the drones are creating PTSD, post-traumatic stress, in a greater way than ordinary airplane pilots experience it because the distancing is less. The drone pilots, even though they're sitting in a chair thousands of miles away, are seeing visually on their screen for weeks on end the lives of families and people that they then have to kill. And so you combine that with the long, boring hours, the disrespect from the rest of the Air Force that thinks of them as video game players and so forth, and recruitment has not been going very well, <laughs> and then the dropout rate is high for drone pilots. And so they're actually talking about reducing drone flights because they don't have the pilots to fly them, <laughs> even though this is just people being paid to sit at desks and play video games in a society where so many people don't have jobs. And so in a really twisted way, it's kind of encouraging that they've made their acts of killing so directly, visibly evil that people can't do it and are refusing and recruitment isn't filling the gaps. I think that that is something that should be built up and that the peace movement is not grasping. I certainly didn't grasp it until I received that material from you. We try to appeal to all people to stop the drones because it's the most uncivilized thing I think society has ever done in my lifetime, where you push a button and some machine goes off 5,000 miles away and wipes out a village. It's just unthinkable, not just for the United States, but for the human animal. But it was so vastly and tremendously unthinkable that we really haven't thought of a way to stop it. And this is a way for human beings to appeal to other human beings. And this would be another thing to be on your website, if I may suggest, worldwithoutwar.org. How to stop this march of drones. Appeal yeah. to the human beings that pilot them. The word is beyond. It's worldbeyondwar.org. You said without, and of course I favor a world <laughs> without war as well. The other group to look at is No Drones, which is K-N-O-W, No Drones, nodrones.org, and they have been buying television ads in Las Vegas and in Syracuse and in these areas around the United States where drones are being piloted and asking drone pilots to refuse to do their job, to refuse the illegal orders to participate in these acts of murder. And just last week put out a long statement signed by a long list of U.S. military veterans appealing to drone pilots to refuse orders to refuse to any longer participate. And I think this sort of public advocacy for resistance that shows the damage, that shows the victims and makes a moral argument is badly needed. And so I encourage people to support No Drones. Let's get these websites straight that we have recommended that our listeners go to, David Swanson. First of all, it's worldbeyondwar.org. And these will be listed in some kind of order at worldbeyondwar.org, right? Yes. Now, what about this nodrones.org website? I don't know if I wrote it down correctly. It's K-N-O-W. It's the word oh, no. know. That... I know something. K-N-O-W-drones.org. <laughs> and they are a small but wonderful organization that has put the first anti-war, anti-drone murder advertisements on U.S. television. And you can go watch what they are on YouTube and see if you like them and help air them in uh, drone-flying communities near you. Well, you know, I love this interview, David Swanson, because it made concrete suggestions for those of us who are progressives, and never mind that, those of us who are civilized. 
and who define what the human animal is supposed to be, which is compassionate and a supporter of life. And I mean real life. So let's do more of this. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you want to tell us before you go? Uh, I think you covered it. Thanks for a wonderful interview. David Swanson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lila. We've been speaking with David Swanson. On second thought, maybe we really haven't had enough of David Swanson. David Swanson, who because of his effective and remarkable work for peace, has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. As you know, he's written brilliant books and articles with titles like War is a Lie and When the World Outlawed War. His website is worldbeyondwar.org, and it's all there, his actions to create that peace and concrete suggestions for our actions. We often talk on Connect the Dots about our entrenched permanent war economy. To feed that economy, we must be at permanent war. What happens when a country recognizes that and converts that economy? In fact, what happens when that country gets rid of its military altogether and creates an economy based on sustaining life instead of ending it? David Swanson wrote an article last month about that country and the result of its conversion. I'm talking about Costa Rica. How is it doing? Here's David Swanson reading his own article to tell us. The forthcoming film, A Bold Peace, Costa Rica's Path of Demilitarization, should be given every possible means of support and promotion. In 1948, Costa Rica abolished its military, something widely deemed impossible in the United States. This film documents how that was done and what the results have been. I don't want to give away the ending, but let me just say this. There has not been a hostile Muslim takeover of Costa Rica. The Costa Rican economy has not collapsed. And Costa Rican women still seem to find a certain attraction in Costa Rican men. How is this possible? Wait, it gets stranger. Costa Rica provides free, high-quality education, including free college, as well as free health care and social security. Costa Ricans are better educated than Americans, live longer, are reported as happier, in fact, happiest in the world in various studies, and lead the world in the use of renewable energy. 100% renewable energy lately in Costa Rica. Costa Rica even has a stable, functioning democracy with far greater required participation, ballot access, diversity of platforms, and popular support than the gerrymandered citizen, united, debolded, home of widely tuned out Bush v. Clinton reruns. Costa Rica has developed a culture of peace, including an educational system that teaches children nonviolent conflict resolution. As someone who grew up being told that we should not use violence, while simultaneously noticing that my society's biggest public project was the U.S. military, I can only imagine the power of consistency found in an educational curriculum that walks its own talk. Costa Rica has built up a society of low violence and of, as one speaker in the film describes it, an attitude of non-aggression toward the poor. Rafael Calderón Guardia, president of Costa Rica from 1940 to 44, began a welfare state in a major way through a unique pre-Cold War coalition of support that included the Catholic Church and the Communist Party. In 48, Calderón ran for president again, lost, and refused to recognize the results. 
a remarkable man named Jose Figueres Ferrer, also known as Don Pepe, who had educated himself at Boston Public Library and returned to Costa Rica to start a collective farm, led a violent revolution and won. Figueres made a pact with the communists to protect the welfare state, and they disbanded their army. And after his own troops threatened a right-wing coup, he disbanded his own army, that of the nation of Costa Rica. Well, of course, Costa Rica could abolish its army only because it had no enemies. So you might think, if such a mental process can be called thinking. In reality, Costa Rica was surrounded by enemies, hostile dictatorships, not to mention the long-standing Monroe Doctrine, U.S. dominance of any Latin American nation that stepped out of line, on top of which Calderon and friends plotted a counter-revolution from Nicaragua and attempted it in 1949 and again in 55 with the support of U.S.-backed Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Tacho Somoza Garcia. What did Costa Rica do? On the model that Jefferson and Madison envisioned for the United States, Figueres maintained the ban on any standing army, but called up a temporary citizen's militia to fight off the invasion successfully, twice. So what if a more powerful invasion had come? I think there are two answers to that. First, Costa Rica is not occupying nations all over the globe, blowing up families with drones, torturing people in secret prisons, arming dictatorships, defending Israel's acts of genocide, etc. That is to say, Costa Rica is not creating enemies. Secondly, if the United States were to attack Costa Rica, no military might on the Costa Rican side could possibly prevail. The best defense against such an attack is, in fact, to possess no military that might be blamed for some incident as grounds for a war. Figueres used a citizen's militia and then disbanded it. He expanded the welfare state, extended the right to vote to women and Afro-Caribbeans, and nationalized banks and electricity. Then he retired peacefully, later to be elected president twice more in 53 and in 1970. He lived until 1990, the victorious general who did what Eisenhower never dared, abolished the military-industrial complex. The U.S. government under President Reagan tried to force Costa Rica into military conflict, but Costa Rica proclaimed neutrality. It did not maintain this neutrality as absolutely as one might like, but it never became home to a big U.S. military base as did Honduras. In 1985, Oscar Arias was elected president on a peace platform, defeating Calderon's son campaigning on a platform of militarization. Costa Rica is facing the destructive effects of corporate trade pacts, rising inequality, and crushing poverty. The film presents a portrait with flaws included. But it is a portrait of a living alternative to the madness, the insanity, the self-destruction of the war machine that has taken over the United States of America and is entirely optional. We can do away with it. It's up to us. That was an excerpt from David Swanson's article read by the author. And if you want to hear all of it and more, his website once again is World Beyond War, all one word. And now we're moving to another pillar of democracy, us. KPFK's board election is coming up in August, and in order to vote in it or run for office in it, you have to join KPFK by July 14th. With us, with all of the details on how to do all that, is Grace Aaron. 
Now, Grace Aaron was on the KPFK local station board as a member from 2003 to 2009, six solid years until she was termed out. And then on the Pacifica National Board from 2008 to 2009. And then she left the National Board to become the Pacifica Interim Executive Director in 2009. Big job. And she's also been the treasurer of KPFK. In addition, she's on a lot of other committees. She's on the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And here's a new one on me. She's vice president of the Social Uplift Foundation. Hmm, that sounds interesting. So, Grace Aaron, welcome to Connect the Dots. Hi, Lila. (laughs) It's good to be here. Yeah, it's fun to have you here. Now, I've already mentioned that you have been on every possible board for KPFK and Pacifica. Let's repeat, you were on the local station board from 2003 to 2009. Six years. Congratulations. Yes, six years. Yes. (laughs) And you've been on the Pacific National Board as a member from 2008 to 2009. Yes. And then from there, you quickly became the interim executive director in 2009. And I remember that era because I was on the air. And there was a great feeling of peace. (laughs) That enveloped all of us while you were in office, so we do miss you. Well, thank you. And I've also known you as treasurer of the Los Angeles branch of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, because I think they once gave me an award. But anyway, I've addressed them a number of times. Yes. And I'm sure you were behind it. And you were great. Our members loved you. Thank you. And you are vice president of the Social Uplift Foundation, Before we start, what is the Social Uplift Foundation? The Social Uplift Foundation is a website that's mainly videos having to deal with social justice, anti-nuclear issues, and peace issues. We have lots of videos up there that people can view. There's even one of you, Lila, with Jan Hirsch about anti-nuclear issues. Well, that settles it. Let's give that to our audience (laughs) again. Now, what what do they log on to? Socialuplift.org. Very simple socialuplift.org. That's a valuable website. It is. Because people like to catch up with what's happening right now and what organizations can they join to move it forward and so on. And, you know, one good, solid venue would be very, very helpful. So let's hope that becomes socialuplift.org. Yeah. And thanks for mentioning it. Now, we want to go through the election calendar because there's a lot of confusion about it. First, tell us, how do you join Pacifica if you are not already a member? It's really, really simple. You go to the KPFK website, kpfk.org, and you just look at the top. It says support. You click on support, and you can become a member for $25 a year. Simple, $25. That makes you eligible to vote in the election. By becoming a member of KPFK, you're also a member of Pacifica. KPFK is one of five radio stations owned by the Pacifica Foundation. So if you become a member of KPFK, you're automatically basically a member of Pacifica. So that's very simple. Now, what are the dates? By what date must you become a member of KPFK in order to vote? You have to be a member of KPFK by July 14th to be eligible to run for the local station board of KPFK. So that's right around the corner, July 14th. Yeah, you got about three and a half weeks to become a member. And in order to run for the local station board, what should you do and how do you campaign? 
Well, you go to kpfk.org website and you scroll down. There's a big block. It's green. It says Election Central. You click on that and that takes you to the Pacifica Elections website. And it has all the information about what you have to do to qualify to be a candidate, all the things you have to do to become a candidate, and so on and so forth. So all you have to do is click on that, and they'll send you all the information, or you can download all the information. So tell us once more. Okay, you go to kpfk.org. Right. You scroll down a little bit to where you see Election Central. You click on that, and it takes you to a place that gives you all the information about the KPFK election. That's good. Well, in terms of character, what sort of people would be best for the KPFK local board? We really need people with a sense of humor. You know, progressives often are too serious. We need people with a sense of humor. We need people who are effective, efficient, who care about Pacifica more than they care about their own petty self-interest or the petty self-interest of their sectarian group that they belong to, who care about the whole ball of wax of Pacifica so that Pacifica continue to bring forward diverse ideas from diverse communities. We want to have people who are of all ethnicities, all age groups, all social viewpoints. We want to have a lot of different ideas in this network. We want people who are interested in music, interested in national politics, international and local politics, all kinds of interests, science, biology, the environment, social justice, of course, and lots of other things. We had a great show. One of the best shows ever on the air was Hour 25. It was a science fiction show. Lots of people loved it. We had an opera show. We want to bring different diverse interests from our Southern California community to KPFK. I want to read from the Pacifica Bylaws. It says in the beginning of the Pacifica Bylaws, this foundation is committed to peace and social justice and seeks to involve in its governance and operations individuals committed to these principles. This is right in our bylaws. Pacifica means peace. KPFK is one of the five Pacifica stations. So please, if you're committed to peace and social justice, consider running for the local station board. The bylaws also say the foundation is committed to diversity and inclusion of all nations, races, ethnicities, creeds, colors, classes, genders, sexual orientations, ages, and people with disabilities in its programming, staff, management, committees, and governance. Yes, but I want to repeat the first thing you said, which was, we want people with a sense of humor. Absolutely. And not only about issues, but about themselves. Now, why don't you give us some hints of what's the most important thing you can do if you want to be elected to the board? What can you do to inform the voters of who you really are? Well, I would like first to reach out to our audience because we have not been properly noticing our meetings and other events to the general public. Because of that and some other reasons, Pacifica has lost its Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding. That means in the last few years, we have lost a total of over $2 million in CPB funding. That's a huge amount of money to lose. That's across the whole network, the five stations, KPFK in Los Angeles, WBAI in New York, KPFA in San Francisco, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. 
These are the largest metropolitan areas in the U.S. It's so important to keep our message alive across the country. Pacifica also has over 130 affiliated stations that carry much of our programming. We also have a historical archive that's priceless. It has all these wonderful speeches and radio shows by progressive celebrities for the last 60 years. It's invaluable to all of us who care about peace and social justice. And it's not just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding that we've lost. All of our vital statistics of Pacifica have been declining for quite a number of years. And this is all a symptom of poor governance. Pacifica is owned by basically the Pacifica National Board. The Pacifica National Board is elected by the local station board members. Each local station board votes for people on that local board to be on the Pacifica National Board. And the Pacifica National Board can sell assets, can mortgage stations. Basically, the Pacifica National Board is the owner of the whole bowl of wax, the five stations, the archives, and the affiliate network. So it's really important. We really, really need good governance. And the good governance starts with the local boards. It's not just a airy-fairy board of directors. These boards have actual power to approve or disapprove budgets, to recommend that general managers and program directors be fired, to hire program directors and general managers, et cetera, et cetera. Local boards are real governing boards. They're not just fundraising boards or anything like that. And the KPFK election is really, really, really important because our last election failed. And so now every single seat on the local station board of KPFK is open. 18 listener members and six staff members sit on the local station board. That's a lot of seats. So all 24 seats are open, which means that if the election fails, the other reason to become a member of KPFK is because even if you don't want to be a board member, you still won't be able to vote in the local station board election unless you're a member. Only members can vote in that election. So there are two reasons to become a member now before July 14th, which is the cutoff date. You got to be a member now to either become a candidate or to vote in the local station board election. Tell us about life on the local board, because we want to recommend to our listeners something to do that's really useful, that's really fun, and that's really edifying. And if we're talking about something that's really torture, we really want to hear about it. <laughs> well, you know, we all love democracy. I'm sure you love democracy. I certainly do, and I don't see nearly enough of it in our own country. So, yes, I, of course I do. Of course, except we both know that, let's face it, some of the time you suffer when you're a person who believes in democracy. However, our chance, if enough really good people out there run for the board and get elected, it'll be a wonderful time on the local station board because every single seat on the local station board at KPFK is open. So we have the chance as listeners with good intentions to make it a wonderful board that's efficient, effective, and fun. But if we don't do anything and if the election fails, it will be the same old board. Let me put it this way. Governance could certainly be improved. So the the membership of KPFK is around 13,000 now. The election to meet its quorum has to have the vote. 1,300 of our members have to vote in the election. 
So that's all. Just 1,300 people have to fill out their election ballot, which will probably be done electronically. But if you want a paper ballot, you can probably ask for it. So it's a small amount of people who are going to decide the future of KPFK and potentially the future of all of Pacifica. Now, let me ask you again. When does the actual election take place? From what I know, the nomination period is between now. It opened two days ago. So you can nominate yourself for the local station board between now and July 14th. That's a short amount of time. Please, we need help. If you have the time and the inclination, nominate yourself for the local station board of KPFK. There's a good chance that you'll get on the board because 24 seats are open. So you could make it. And if you do want to run on the board, urge a friend to do it with you because you want to have company. You want to share the time carpool with another person. Probably the both of you will get on the board. It's a great thing for younger people. You know what it means on your resume to say that you've been on the governance board of a radio station? That really is a powerful thing to have on your resume. It is. You're right about that. You know, and you learn about Robert's Rules of Order. You learn about how governing boards operate. You learn about democracy. You learn about the pluses of democracy, the minuses of democracy. You learn about how committees function, how committees bring things to the board as a whole. It's a real learning experience. It's very powerful. You get a lot out of it. You learn how to speak in public, how to write motions that get voted on up or down. If you're a politician, this is a good thing. You know, run for the local station board, campaign. It gives you practice. In other words, do all of this before July 14th. Absolutely. Become a member, $25, or if you volunteer for three hours, you'll get a membership without any money. There are other ways to become a member. Look at the kpfk.org website, scroll down to the election logo there, press on it, and you'll get all the information. Well, Grace Aaron, if anybody knows how to get on the station board, it is you, and we're very glad you were chosen to do that. You were a wonderful leader. I was on the board for six years, and I'm here to tell you that it was a positive experience all in all, and I would strongly encourage people to join the local station board. Well, you have done that. you made it seem very, very tempting. And thank you so much for those excellent instructions, and I believe we have fulfilled our duty because our charter says elections should be promoted on the air. Thank you, Lila. Let's change the world to a better place Where we can breathe clean water and space A world without war, a world without race Let's make the world a much better place And that's our show for today. We thank our guests, David Swanson, currently a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, and Grace Aaron, former board member and executive director of the Pacifica Network. Our theme, Let's Move the World, was written by me and performed by Keaton Simons. You can find it and his own great music on iTunes and KeatonSimons.com. Connect the Dots was edited by Mark Maxwell, whose great jazz show, Rise, is on Sunday nights from midnight to 3 a.m., much better than sleeping. Connect the Dots was created, produced, and hosted by me. I'm Lila Garrett. We hope you like us on Facebook, and we'll be back next week 
when once again we'll attempt to connect the dots.